0: Christmas carol by dickens because one of the major themes that runs throughout the christmas carol is this whole idea of how of how scrooge is going to react to this whole idea of the blessing you see take for example in this opening in this opening chapter He's still turned off, Scrooge is, by a nephew who doesn't see the value of prosperity monetarily. He has so little, and yet his nephew seems to have so much when it comes to his relationship with God. And the nephew says, God bless it, speaking of his own scarcity. A little later on, after Scrooge has made sure he was ushered out of the house, Scrooge is out on the streets, you see, and there's this Christmas carol being sung. God bless you, Mary gentlemen. May nothing you dismay. Now, what does Scrooge do at that point? We're told by Dickens, Scrooge seized the ruler with such energy of action that the singer fled in terror. There's a real tension, a real conflict, that Scrooge seems to have, you see, with the idea of the blessing. But there's a transformation that takes place in his heart. It's worth exploring and discussing among people. And now you're bridging the culture, the man who invented Christmas movie, to Dickens' work and inward towards the scriptures, you're making your move, you see. Because at the very end of the book, A Christmas Carol, Dickens writes, it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well. Scrooge! If any man alive possessed the knowledge. And may that be truly said of us, And of all of us, last sentence, and so, as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. Now, I was not a literature major, though I'm fascinated by it all. Because now that leads us into these four passages we've explored this Advent season, and what they share in common is the blessing. The blessing. We spotted in our first study that even though it took 11 chapters in Genesis to produce the word bless five times, in chapter 12, when Abram appears on the scene five times in just two verses, verses 2 and 3, 12th chapter, God speaks in some form some way some nature of the blessing and after abram would come isaac who would be a transmitter of god's blessing and after isaac would come jacob and jacob would have a tremendous tension you see with his twin brother esau because the tension revolved around who was going to get the what the blessing Esau basically turned his back on it, didn't take it seriously, like so many people do when it comes with the blessings of grace in Christ. Jacob took it serious. But now what I want you to see here is that we're nearing the end of Jacob's life. He comprehends the significance of God's blessing. And so what you find here is that Jacob now in his final days is pulling together his family. It's, it's kind of like a Christmas gathering. Now when you pull family together for a Christmas gathering, you're taking into account particularly when, when people have grown up and they've got children of their own. You're not dealing with history. You're dealing with personalities. You're dealing with peace and conflict and you're dealing with the highs and the lows and the whole range of dynamics that go into what makes family, family. And now you pull them together and there's going to be this exchange of gifts and the likes. And I'm reminded of what the humorist David Berry said with regard to the opening of the gifts. He said, once the gifts have been opened, Let the torn wrappings remain on the floor for a while. Recognize the bless in the mess. Now maybe this Christmas season you've looked over relational matters and you see a mess. Where's the bless in this mess? Maybe it's job related. Maybe it's dreams not yet fulfilled. You thought 2017 was gonna be a little bit different. What I want you to see here is that like Scrooge, there's gotta be a transformation where you can end it all by recognizing that God is the one who delights in providing the blessing. And so here now, there's a blessing in this mess. The gifts are being unwrapped. There's wrapping all over the floor. But let's stay there for a while. Ponder the bless in the mess. Because now in verses 1 and 2, Jacob in his final days is calling his sons together. He says, gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. It's an interesting expression, days to come, because it's linked ultimately in Scripture to that final day. And everything that leads onward toward that final day, the days to come leading to that ultimate day to come. And the blessing and the curse that you and I find in the Genesis account continues to unfold in this whole matter, you see, of the cross of Jesus Christ where we receive the blessing because Christ took upon himself the curse and brings the blessed to the mess. As we look at the gift, wrappings are all over the floor of life. And we consider what Jesus Christ has done for us. I want to draw out four aspects of tracing this blessing with you this morning. We're now in that fourth study of the blessed teaching. We're in Genesis 49. Families gather together. And now you pick it up in verse 8. And here we find the first of four aspects of the blessing. So number one, as we trace God's blessing, we're going to do this together, I want you to first notice with me the tribe chosen by God. You say, Gary, what does that got to do with Christmas? Everything. Because in verse 8 now, what we find is that Jacob is going to be the transmitter of the blessing that will lead to Jesus. And so in verse 8, Jacob now in his latter years looks at this mess and offers the bless when he says, Judah. And Judah's brothers are listening in. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. What are they thinking of that? Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Let's break this down. What's going on here? You would have thought that, in fact, the oldest one would be receiving the blessing. That's the way it worked in the Middle East in that time period. But you see, God's not bound by tradition. You might love traditional Christmases. But you see, God's going to choose the fourth son, not the first son. He's not bound by tradition. He's just a communicator of truth. And so Reuben... He listens in verse 3, what Jacob will acknowledge, you are my firstborn, but Jacob had to remind himself that Esau was the firstborn, and yet God had chosen to transmit the blessing through Jacob rather than Esau. And he could probably still feel the tension in his heart as he's reliving the experience. It's not for Simeon and Levi either, the second and third sons, and they're described in 5, 6, and 7. But now you get to Judah, and he's got a history. And this this is no innocent bystander in the whole history of life. But God's grace breaks in at this point. And what you will find is that there's a sense here protection with this election. God is protecting this promise that is going to lead through the tribe of Judah toward the one who will die in your place and my place for our sins. They're leaning forward. They're listening in. Judah. You know the name Jews is associated with the name Judah. Now I want you to bear in mind, on the cross of Jesus Christ, the placard over that cross said, not King of Israel, said King of the Jews. I'll try to answer that one as we work this through. Judah. Your brothers shall praise you. All the other tribes. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. The enemies. Now, if you make your way through your Older Testament, you will know that there's enemies all around. Philistines, they're to the west. Go south. Want some warmth for the holidays? Nope, there's the Amalekites. Head east. Go further than New England, sorry to say. Edomites. And then, lo and behold, here come Assyrians and later Babylonians from the north. And yet this significant tribe, the tribe of Judah, is going to stand strong in the midst of it all. This this is prophecy unfolding. And it's going to be out of Judah that you're going to find Messiah. And this is salvation in embryonic form emerging. You take a deep breath. And now you ponder the significance of all the enemies of the Jews throughout all the time period, and you wonder and you marvel at the whole idea that God has preserved the Jews. Astounding. In the midst of all their enemies. 1948. Historian tells us, Arab-Israeli war is taking place. There's this Arab village that's controlled the western approaches to Jerusalem. Defense of the village is turned over to 70 men from Jerusalem, and naturally the Arabs regroup and they counterattack under their leader Kamel Irakat, while 400 men screaming Allah Akbar." Meanwhile they sweep down upon the Jewish positions, driving the Jews to trenches. But lo and behold, their problem begins to arise. In this case, the enemy of the Jews at this point, 1948, were exhausted. Most of these Arabs were without food for 24 hours. Time out. They sent for village women to bring them food. Attack again but halfway through their assault on the village they run out of ammunition no one had thought to procure adequate supplies time out couriers go off again to buy ammunition but when they return jewish ammunition finds jericot their leader there was only one medic one first aid kit available to the 500 villages villagers the medic insisted that Irokot, the enemy, leading enemy of the Jewish people, be brought to Jerusalem for treatment. Irokot knew that without his presence, this assault was going to fizzle. The villagers always looked to him as their charismatic leader for inspiration. There was no other leader, but here the Jews took in the Arabs meeting the needs, and the Arab forces dwindled and left the field. Now, Jacob is applying some medicine here. He looks out over the tribes to come, embryonic form found within these sons of his, There were tensions. One of those sons, they would have sold Joseph into slavery, of course. There was conflict among them. There was conflict within them. But now he picks out the fourth one. Not because he was good, but because of God's grace. Judah. Your brothers shall praise you. Shades of that dream that Joseph had when brothers would have praised him. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, which projects ahead to that final day still to come when that one from Judah emerges a second time to tackle the whole issue of the enemies converging on Jerusalem. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. And now you and I begin to wonder, what is it about Judah? that you and I need to know as it relates to the Christmas story. But then there is this promise that's made towards the back of your Older Testament, isn't there? Because in Micah chapter 5, and in verse 2, there's this promise eight centuries before Jesus emerged in Bethlehem to die on Calvary. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Oh, man. Eight centuries prior to the Christmas story in Bethlehem is the promise made about Bethlehem. Where is Bethlehem? It's in Judah. Meanwhile, there's a debate in the UN with regard to the fact that America is recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And so, right there in the midst of 2017 newscasts, you have scenes being shown of how Bethlehem is reacting to the idea of Christmas simultaneously. We've got challenges on the streets of Jerusalem as to how the UN has responded to this idea of recognizing Jerusalem as capital, we have now connected Bethlehem to Jerusalem. In other words, you have just connected Christmas to Good Friday, that he came into this world not merely to be a good teacher, though he was. He came in this world not to merely be a good example, he was. He came to this world, two natures, one person to die in our place for our sins, you see. And the global tensions, right now in the news, watch the connection between Bethlehem and Jerusalem this weekend. They are part of Judah. Now, as you process that, you understand at this point that there's something of significance that, On that cross, it read, King of the Jews, not King of Israel. And you ponder the significance of God's protective grace that in his strategic plan for both present and future, he's preserved the Jews. So much is packed in that one verse that we have just unpacked. So when you see the mess, look for the bless, it's there. And when you are looking at the wrappings on the floor tomorrow, and you're thinking about the gifts, think about the greatest gift of all, and the one who came into Bethlehem to die on the outskirts of Jerusalem for you and for me. And it's tied right here in embryonic form in these verses. There's your first aspect. That as we trace God's blessing Note the tribe chosen by God. So Megan Beecham is watching carefully this movie unfold, the man who invented Christmas, and she continues to ask this question, as written in World Magazine: Why the transformation? What's the transformation? How does Scrooge, who seems so opposed to this idea of the Christmas blessing, that he he went after somebody who was saying, God bless you, merry gentlemen, but at the very end, he keeps Christmas spirit, and God bless you all becomes his mindset. And how does God go about transforming such people anyways, you see? Going through some tough times? Have you pondered how God will bless? Or are you overly consumed with the mess? David Berry poses that question in his humorous column, you see. Now you're ready for the second aspect. Because secondly, as we trace God's blessing, now I want you to note with me, not only the tribe chosen by God in verse 8, but the metaphor used by God in verse 9. What's the metaphor? The lion. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. As a lioness, who dares rouse him? He said, yeah, I'm a little bit out of sync here. I forget my literature in high school metaphor. Give me a quick reminder. Okay. I get that. It's a figure of speech. It's used to make a comparison between two things that are not alike, uh, but still share something in common. When Bernie Tafoya on WBBM wants to give an update on, on, on the conditions of the roads, what does he say? the interstate is a parking lot now is it literally a parking lot Mm-mm. He's using a metaphor at that point or an analyst would say America is a melting pot or someone else would say the world is a stage meanwhile Here's Jacob, and he looks at Judah now and he says, well, this is is how I'm going to symbolize you and and your descendants. Judah's a lion's cub, and so if you explore the scenery and the topography of Israel, what you will find to this very day is that in the Jordan Valley area is still where you will find lion's lairs. Now, where it says return from, it means for you to go up and away from. Judah's is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. And now he positions himself, this lion does, stoops down, crouched as a lion, as a lioness, who dares rouse him. C.S. Lewis picked up on it, didn't he? Where with Aslan, he's got Aslan, the lion, functioning as the metaphor of Jesus Christ, you see. And children, age 1 through 100 plus, are reading that book. And they're reflecting upon the significance of who is this Aslan, what's he all about, when all of a sudden he's raised from the dead, you see. And Lewis is tied his back to the metaphor the lion, but it happened in Milwaukee as well. Teddy Roosevelt, unforgettable, vigor, dynamic, gusto, October 14th, 1912, about to deliver a speech in Milwaukee. So he's getting up in his, to, into his car to leave for the auditorium. Historian writes, a man came up and shot him in the chest. Roosevelt's doctors pled with him to go to the hospital. And we did. Instead, he headed for the auditorium. And upon arriving, he told the people he'd been shot, asked them to be quiet, and then began to pull out his blood-soaked manuscript, from which he proceeded to speak for 90 minutes. When Roosevelt died in 1919, His youngest son cabled his brothers on Europe's battlefields with this news. Quote, the lion is dead. Unquote. Meanwhile, back to Aslan, you see. Because Lewis knew that three days later, the lion would be raised from the dead. The lion of Judah. Even Disney picks up on this. The Lion King, you know. Simba is of the authentic line, you see. He's going to be heir. He's going to be the future king. But then his children would tell you and tell me there is a counterfeiter on the hands. His name's Scar, and he he wants to be king. But then the apostle Peter would remind you and me, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a what? A roaring Lion. Now bring all this together and what you see is that there is not only an authentic concept of Messiah, there are counterfeiters when it comes to the idea of the Messiah. And there is this attempt from the evil one to keep Messiah from appearing on the scene. And so Jacob's tribe is going to find that in the coming days leading to that ultimate day, there will be an attempt to annihilate the Jews. And so there's a Pharaoh who will have these baby boys put to death in the Old Testament. There will be a Herod who will be threatened by this one born in Bethlehem of where? Judea. He is uh, from Judah. He will attempt to thwart this promise. But you see, God has got this protective hand upon his promised strategy because not only you're tracing here God's blessing regarding the tribe chosen by God in eight, you're tracing the blessing that God's providing pertaining to the metaphor here that God has established, used in verse 9. And if there is one major theme in verse 9, it's one of conquests. And three days later, the Lion of Judah would be raised from the dead, conquering death. Meanwhile, he stooped down. He crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? But he'll come a second time, you see, this Lion of Judah, and fulfill what he, what's promised of him, of old. You pull all that together. and You see the significance of what's going on here. But now you're ready for this third aspect. Because as we trace God's blessing, you not only notice the tribe chosen by God in 8, and the metaphor used by God in verse 9, but now thirdly, the royalty promised by God in verse 10. Take it slow. Real slow. Because in 10 we read, the scepter shall not depart from where? Judah. What is a scepter? The scepter is the symbol of kingship. There was an archaeological find of uh, King Darius from the Middle East. And in that archaeological find, uh, a painting, portrait, of him with his scepter. But you see, he no longer rules. We need an eternal ruler here. Where do we go for that? Read on. The scepter shall not depart from where? Judah. Meanwhile, magi from the east are appearing where? Jerusalem, what's been debated in the UN? Jerusalem. Meanwhile, scenes of Christmas of Bethlehem shown at the same time this weekend. Are you connecting Bethlehem to Jerusalem, all of which is part of Judah? And they're asking this question, where is he who has been born king? Of the Jews, as you ponder this Genesis 49 promise of royalty, and notice it reads King of the Jews, not King of Israel. Meanwhile, that placard we're reminded of over Jesus' head on that cross, King of the Jews, and you are continuously awed that God is a promise keeper, He protects His promise. And the Jews are still functioning, and in 1948, regain nationhood status. They've come from the east, you see, to worship him. Meanwhile, Herod. What is Herod? He is a king. So now we've got a conflict here with regard to the whole matter of the king, like Simba versus Scar. Or in this particular situation here, Jesus versus Herod. What kind of king is Herod? Herod is the kind of king that takes life. What kind of king is Jesus? He's the kind of king who gives life. Herod goes and asks the scribes to check out where in the scriptures the promises is made regarding this king to come. In Bethlehem of Judea, for it's written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah twice used. Emphasis. Judah has not merely priority. Judah has preeminence. As I walked the hallways of a particular church building years and years ago in Pittsburgh, and there is a portrait of Jesus, flanked by portraits of Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Albert Schweitzer and others. Yet Jesus is centered in the midst of it all. And I write down on a little notepad that I keep carrying around with me, taking in the stories of life. In this setting, in this religious setting, Jesus is prominent, but he is not preeminent. And one of the big challenges when you look at all the religions of this world, they give a lot of respect to Jesus. Jesus has a prominent role, but he is not preeminent. Which is it for you in your own personal life with God? Does Jesus have a prominent role? Mercy, Lord, preeminent over your life. Meanwhile, back to those Magi, and you, O Bethlehem, and the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of where? Judah. And now you think through your Old Testament and you realize even King David came from Judah, and he was another, he was another transmitter of the blessing that leads to the ultimate blesser who came not to take life, but came to give life Jesus Christ. Meanwhile, you're pondering Megan Beesham's writings in World Magazine, and she's wrestling with why the transformation in Scrooge. And at the end, Scrooge recognizes the value of the blessing. Meanwhile, back to Genesis 49, where the brothers are listening carefully. And in this whole matter of the transmission of the blessing, God's blessing, you're noting the tribe chosen by God in verse 8, out of which Jesus will come. The metaphor used by God in verse 9, the lie in which is seized upon again and again and again in both movies and in writings. And furthermore, the royalty promised by God in verse 10, but you're not done with 10 yet, because it goes on to say, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, as you've pondered archaeological finds of Kings like Darius with a scepter between their feet, except that their kingdom doesn't last, you see. We need a kingdom that lasts. We need some resurrection here. And here it comes. Until tribute comes to him. Or, in my preferred understanding of the translation found not in the ESV here, but rather in the the New American Standard, in the King James, until Shiloh comes because that's the Hebrew word utilized here it is a pronoun linked together to anticipate this one who in cryptic form is being described as the one to be anticipated Messiah two things unfold here in this verse the tribe of Judah is not going to cease to exist as people do you see it there and to him shall be the obedience of the people. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, until Shiloh comes, and not only the first coming, but the second coming of Messiah, who now will put in order all of this order and bring the blessed to the mix of the mess, as Dave Barry put it in his column. And Judah continues on as the UN debates Jerusalem and as the news reports on what's happening in Bethlehem. But furthermore, Judah will have a government of its own until the Messiah appears on the scene, because that word until is critical here. It carries with the idea of the obedience of the nations will be his. Speaking of that future day, when every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord not merely prominent, preeminent, you take a deep breath, you see that there's so much here about how Christmas links to Good Friday, and Good Friday links itself, you see, to Easter, and the first coming links itself to the second coming. you pull all this stuff together here and you're saying to yourself, there's something here to be unpacked, this Christmas story, that needs to be applied to modern day life personally and yet globally. I'm thinking this through personally as the UN's debating matters globally. Meanwhile, you get to this fourth aspect and you unpack it because fourthly, as we trace God's blessing, note the future described by God. And lo and behold, you've got a foretaste, don't you? Because in verse 11 of this predictive prophecy, it goes on to say, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's coat to the choice vine. And meanwhile, what you and I know is that in Matthew chapter 21, Matthew chapter 21. Jesus is getting ready to head into where? Jerusalem. Where's Jerusalem? Judah. And Jesus sends two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there, a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me, and if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord. Sense preeminence, not merely prominence. The Lord needs them. And he'll send them at once. And then Matthew informs us this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. As Jesus would make his way now on that Sunday, that you and I know as Palm Sunday, and now you're linking together the Christmas story to Palm Sunday, to Good Friday, to Easter Sunday, to that future return of Jesus Christ. As this pulls itself together, binding his foe to the vine and his donkey's coat to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. What does that mean? Well, you see, on the temple gate was emblazoned emblazoned during the time of, of Solomon, the vine. It was the symbol of plenty promised to the Jews from their God. So now, just as in that Old Testament, when, when those spies sent out, you see, were brought, brought back with them grapes from the land, describing the plenty of the land. The grapes were signifying something to the Israelites regarding this Genesis 49 aspect. You see, what God is saying with regard to the future is that this will be a time of plenty when Shiloh returns. And you've got a foretaste of that when he rode into Jerusalem the first time and then will return a second time. First time on the donkey, the second time on the white horse, the imagery now, the symbolism, of the book of Revelation. And then you pull it together in verse 12. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. And now he's describing how the first coming via Bethlehem and the second coming, the return to Jerusalem, themselves together as the news is recording the events of Bethlehem and describing the challenges and the conflicts of Jerusalem and you begin to see the significance of the blessing how all this gets tied together and then you ponder something historically in the United States because David McCullough's book the American Spirit a collection of speeches about our history by a historian who loves the saga of John Adams and John Quincy Adams. And one of his best discussions deals with the significance of two sentences from John Adams where Adams carved into a White House wooden mantelpiece these words, quote, I pray heaven to bestow the best of blessings on this house and all that shall hereafter inhabit it all future presidents may none but honest and wise men ever rule under this roof and you say again can we have this perfected for us The Bible shows us how. Two passages appear on the screen. They deal with the first coming. They deal with the second coming. And they deal with something that they have in common. Let's figure it out together. First coming. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, as Herod wants to know where this king is. Herod, a king that takes life. Jesus born to give life. So, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of where? Judah. See the embryonic aspect of this promise in Genesis 49? Christmas come early in the book of Genesis? Are by no means least among the rulers of what? Judah, italicized. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Shiloh. Messiah. First coming. Herod's kingdom didn't last. But the one king of the Jews, not king of Israel, the placard over his head, three days later, raised from the dead, allows for us to understand the first coming, points to the second coming. And now in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, you pull all this together. You've gone from Genesis to Revelation. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. This is this incredible? The what? There's your metaphor. The lion. The lion of where? The tribe of Judah. The root of David. Has conquered. So that he can open the scroll. And it's seven seals. And the Scrooges of this world experience the transformation of the spirit. So that as Dickens points out, and as Megan Bisham in her movie critique processes, it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well. If any man alive possessed the knowledge, may that be truly said of us and all of us. And so as Tiny Tim observed, God, bless us, everyone. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have been blessed with the grace of God. Let's stand together. The one who comes here today spiritually curious, the one who drinks in the complexities of this world, tries to see how all this fits together globally, and yet still dealing with the mess personally. In the midst of family gatherings and extended gatherings and office gatherings and all this, we've got the promise of one first coming and second coming connected together in the idea of the blessing that is found in Genesis. So, Father, for that person who comes into any of these services today and they need that transformed spirit, I pray that he or she now will repent of sin, put faith exclusively in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, and know the true blessing found in a relationship with you through Jesus. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Merry Christmas.